three, two, one. Welcome to The Peaceful Truth, the podcast where we talk about everything from women empowerment, feminism, and more. You're joined by your two co-hosts, Kenzie Meekbeck and And Megan Hoharts. Thank you for coming back for, this is going to be episode 13. Ooh, unlucky 13. Oh, maybe we should find if there's Friday the 13th this month. Okay. No, it's not. Because then this week is 11th, 12th. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's not. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. So, how was our weeks today? My week was weeks good. Week. Um, I hurt my lower back putting mm. my crock pot in my refrigerator. Tell the story. So, I was taking the crock pot full of my vegetarian chili that I just made, Ooh. and then I was moving it to the refrigerator, and as I was bending down, I got stuck, and then I was like, Des, Des, hurry, come over, get this crock pot out of my hands. I was like stuck mid-bending down, and so I texted my friend Charlotte and told her what happened, and she goes, welcome to 28. <laughs> we're, we're not 30 yet though <laughs> not that 30 is bad we probably have some listeners that are 30 plus and we're like we're not 30 yet so I'm going to acupuncture on Wednesday and I'm putting these I don't know Chinese medicine patches on my back that help a lot they feel really good and they smell weird but I like the way they smell do you smell it her apartment so we're obviously if you're watching on YouTube where her apartment is like a yoga studio <laughs> so kind it of. smells like one and it's very zen it just has positive vibes in here i love it thank you for saying that no worries how I was your weekend was that the only thing that happened to you this week <laughs> i mean girl what else happened that's it <laughs> that was my whole week your whole week um what happened to me this week well we had a day off because we're filming we film in the past (laughs) so uh we had a day off because it was labor day weekend and so we had some days off in between i'm trying to think what i did work 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 oh t swift's new song came out oh yeah oh i remember what i did i did cycling in a yoga class and i went to this oh i'll describe this yoga class make it was weird or it was awkward so it was at a studio in cap hill Cap Hill probably and it was deep tissue massage but it was like self-massage with tune-up balls yeah you didn't like it I thought it was great but it was also just so awkward because you just like rub against a wall like with your back yeah with like a ball and you just like rub and there was this like old man in cargo shorts like right in front of me and it just like kept making awkward eye contact and I'm like oh I could see how you would think it was awkward but it feels really good though it feels really good because I carry all my stress in my upper back so it really did relieve a lot it was like a deep tissue massage but I thought and even though we did work on it a little bit, I thought it was going to be more foundational, like in the poses. A like bit. learning the poses and all of the proper alignment. Yeah, based on the description. But it ended up being really peaceful and having yoga ball, uh, like rubbing the against balls. the wall. I think like I do love yoga and I think that it really helps with my anxiety lately. But um I also find the humor in it sometimes <laughs> just like sometimes it's awkward, man. I think I'm like so out there with yoga that nothing surprises me anymore. I just find it hilarious. One time, like one of my first yoga classes, I went with Julie, my stepmom, and uh, it was like during the holidays or something. So I had some time off from college and we went to a yoga class at Lifetime Fitness and it was with a bunch of like kind of like Colleyville moms, which have their own like, sorry, Colleyville moms, but you know, anyway, so we were doing like the yoga and, um, we could not stop laughing throughout the whole class. Cause like we kept falling down, like none of us were at all stretchy and like, we just like kept falling down and we just kept laughing. And then all the other ladies were like, Turning their noses up at you? Yeah. That's funny. But it was, like, probably way too advanced for us. <laughs> yeah. We probably went to, like, an advanced lesson. That's funny. Anyway, it was funny. So my first yoga class, I talk about this on the back of my little postcard about me. Um, but my first yoga class, I went with my best friend, Charlotte. And we were probably, like, juniors or seniors in high school. 
and the whole room started to ohm and practice ujjayi breath and me and charlotte were in the back like rolling our eyes like oh my god this is so dumb (laughs) and we were just like this is ridiculous what are we doing here and then like 10 years later me and charlotte i mean i am deeply embedded in yoga and charlotte is deeply embedded in yoga she's a pilates instructor now and so it's kind of funny like how that turned around it is funny yeah I know I love it too but it's it's just funny you have to have a really open mind yeah do some crazy shit no it's true and it's just like I don't know sometimes I worry like that I'm gonna fart oh girl you will fart I really am afraid and you can cut this out if you want, but you will also queef. No, I don't think we should cut that out. This is a feminist podcast. Let's talk about some queefs. Girl, I've queefed like no other. <laughs> Do you want to cut this out? No. <laughs> Are you sure? I don't know. I can stop talking about it. I kind of want to talk about queefs now. No, so, but like when you do the pose, okay, there's like one pose and you probably know the name because you're an, a teacher, but like when you do that back thing and you like lift your bridge, like bridge, when you do a bridge, I'm so worried about queefing then. Yeah, because no, it is proven. There are articles out there about queefing in yoga because women do it because whenever you go upside down and whenever you don't apply Mula Bandha, which is the art of energy, pulling the energy up. You let your vagina just lets in all the air. And then when you come back down, the air has to come out. And it sounds like a fart at least. At least it sounds like a fart. I can't. But But there are multiple articles about like how women are so embarrassed to go to yoga because if they've queefed once, then they're so worried about it I've never queefed in yoga yet. I think it's because... I'm like pushing the air out so hard in my vagina because I'm afraid. Maybe, yeah. That's kind of gross. Like whenever I am just like trying to throw myself into a posture and not worrying about my vagina, then air for sure gets up there. So how are you supposed to avoid queefs or you just let them happen? Sometimes I just let them happen. But like, how do you avoid it? You just said the energy is supposed to be more... Mulabanda? Yeah. It's kind of hard to explain. I don't... I don't have it down fully I think it takes a really advanced yogi to do it but it's like it's not squeezing the vagina it's not keeping it clamped but it's kind of like pulling the energy from the vagina up so that it's slightly oh I get what you're saying okay the way that you just they describe it whenever they're they're doing like kegel exercises (laughs) kind of yeah so the way that they describe it whenever you're learning about mulabanda is Whenever you walk into a really cold pool and whenever it gets up to your vagina, that feeling of like, oh, it's cold. Yeah. It's like that is Mula Banda that like, oh, it's cold, that energy right there. So it's not like taking your vagina and just like clamping it together, but it's just kind of like, oh, that energy of, do you get it a little bit? Yeah. (laughs) We're so worried about talking about this, but like, let's be real. Like, if we're true feminists and we're talking about the body, mm-hmm. queefing is a thing about vaginas. Queefing is a thing. Does, can it have another name? What is the proper terminology? I feel like queef is the... Is the lingo? Is the slang. Okay. Googling. I could be wrong. Queef could be the scientific word for it. Queef. My mom calls it vagina farts. <laughs> She's going to be listening and be like, damn it, Megan. vaginal flatulence yeah queef is better than is it normal to queef yeah queef is in the oxford dictionary okay it's the scientific word so girls out there if you queef in yoga you queef in yoga try to just hold your head up high i mean it's just vagina it's just air coming in and out of the vagina. That is literally all it is. We should not be embarrassed about it. It's the same thing as when you get embarrassed by your stomach growling. Oh, you're hungry. So embarrassing. Yeah. You know, but still, for some reason, we think it's embarrassing. Yeah. At least it doesn't smell like a toot. No, not at all. It doesn't smell like anything. No, it's just in, out. <laughs> it's just, here's a queef. <laughs> wow. We went off on a tangent. All right. So those were our weeks. (laughs) Okay. We're going to transition now from that topic 
to something more serious. Yeah, the, pretty much the rest of the podcast is going to be super serious. Yeah. So our thoughts and prayers are with Florida. I last I looked, it had hit the um, the keys. Yeah. So we're recording this before so, something happened. So it was something before the devastation. So we're thinking about Florida. We're we are also still thinking about Houston. Um, after Harvey and Irma, but just make sure to donate and keep all of those people in your mind because this is going to impact them again for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, and thinking about my friend Charlotte, her family has a condo in Florida and on the side that's going to get hit. And so Charlotte got married there. I was mm. her maid of honor there. So just thinking about all of the people in Sarasota and just praying for them. Yeah, that's tough. It is tough. Okay. Kenzie, what are we going to talk about this week? Today we're talking about The Keepers. It is a docu-series on Netflix. And I wanted to give this disclaimer. We wanted to give this disclaimer. Yes. We're going to be talking about violence, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and rape. If you are triggered by these topics, we believe it would be beneficial for you to refrain from listening this week. And we hope you can join us again next week and for episodes in the future that won't cover as triggering of topics and the same with young kids so although we believe young women should learn about sexual abuse these are conversations that should take place with parents and trusted adults not on our podcast also we probably should have said that before we talked about queefs yeah (laughs) you could cut that out and move it to the top So um, we got this idea to cover the keepers. <laughs> I don't know why. It was kind of your idea. I guess you can kind of explain how we. It was Alicia's Olsen. Yeah, which is okay. So we've never explained this part of me and Meg's friendship. But oh, yeah. We are. We met through a sorority. Um, but I guess. Chelsea. Can you explain our family tree? Yeah. Because we actually. Meg and I are in the same family. Yep. So, which if you don't know what that means, you are like paired up with girls within the sorority as part of a family and they kind of guide you through the sisterhood. Anyway, Chelsea's my little. So Chelsea is your sister. Chelsea's my little. I'm in my sister's. I'm my sister. I'm sisters with my sister squared. (laughs) And then, um, Julie Jackson is Chelsea's little. I'm using all of y'all's maiden names. Sorry about that. Um, and then Emily Anderson is Julie's little. I'm and then Emily's little. Oh, and Cooper's <laughs> mad about this. Cooper, Coop, get it together, man. And then Alicia Olson is my big, and this is Alicia's idea. I'm gonna get Cooper. Cooper, come here. Cooper, what is he barking at? I don't know. Our boys are so crazy on our podcast. <laughs> Um, man interrupting man interrupting um so this was alicia olsen's idea she texted me and said have you seen the keepers and i go oh my gosh we should do an episode on it and then she said yes i've been for some reason she's been thinking of the peaceful truth the entire time that she's been watching it maybe because it's the two main characters are like best friends and trying to solve the murder yeah maybe that's it oh i didn't know alicia listened to every episode yeah, girl. Hi, Alicia. So it was Alicia who texted me, and then I was like, we got to do this, Kins. And then I made you watch it. Yeah. Because I had already watched it. Oh, you had? hmm Oh. Okay. Okay, so I'll kick things off. What I'm going to do is provide a short summary of each episode. And I was super intimidated by, whenever Alicia told me about this idea, I agreed that it was a super great idea, but then... I was super intimidated because I said, how are we going to possibly, I mean, that documentary, it's a seven-part episode. How are we going to possibly cover it and get all the details? There's so many intricate ins and outs. And then I found this really, really great um, source from Entertainment Weekly. It's called The Keeper's Binge Recap by Isabella Biden-Harn, Joe McGovern, and Christian Holub. Do you think she's related to Joe Biden? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Okay. Um, So they did a really, really good job. They have like 
the five key points of each episode. And so I'm just going to go through each episode and then we can pause if Kenzie has any more comments. Can I give a brief overall summary, which, and then you go into more depth into every episode? Do it. Because I have a very broad overview and then you can go into every episode. Um, Are you mad about that? Zero percent. Okay, cool. So this is from a description on Google. I didn't, it was like one of those sidebar things. So I'm sorry. It's just when you Google the series, it just pops up in the right hand side. So I couldn't tell if it was Wikipedia or like IMBD or Netflix itself. Anyway, um, Netflix latest docuseries tackles the unsolved murder of Kathy Sesnick, a beloved nun and Catholic high school teacher in Baltimore, Maryland. After disappearing on November 7th, 1969, Sesnick's body was found nearly two months later. But to this day, the killer remains unnamed. In the 90s, the case returned to the spotlight after one of Sesnick's former students uh, accused the high school's chaplain of sex sexual abuse and claims that she was taken to Sesnick's then undiscovered corpse and threatened. Director Ryan White pieces together the story through conversations with friends, relatives, journalists, government officials, and Baltimore citizens hoping to uncover the truth. Very, very broad. Okay, now let's go into depth into every episode. I also wanted to mention that Ryan White, the director, came to this story through personal connections. His mom and his aunt both went to Keough High School, so the high school where all this crap went down. Were they sexually assaulted? Nope, but they were friends with some of the girls who were. Okay. So, back to our really cool Entertainment Weekly source. Okay. Episode one. The murder. In 1969, Kathy Sesnick, a 26-year-old nun and beloved high school teacher, was murdered in Baltimore, and the crime was never solved. So this first episode, we kind of just learn about the murder, and we learn about all the facts behind it. We are also introduced to Tom Nugent, the journalist who wrote a story on the murder and who could just, like, never let it go. He was always haunted by the mystery of who killed Kathy Sesnick. We're also introduced to Gemma Hoskins. She's the former student of Kathy Sesnick. She's known as the Bulldog. She's unafraid to talk to anybody, and she's going to ask all the questions to all of the people. And then her sidekick is Abby Schwab. She's also a former student. She's more shy and soft-spoken and a research whiz. And so they ha- they form pretty much the perfect team. Um. Gemma and Abby are quoted as saying, our concern is that she fell into something evil and got caught up with it. We're told the story is not the nun's killing. The story is the cover-up of the nun's story. Sister Kathy was a beloved English teacher at Archbishop Keough High School in Baltimore, an all-girls Catholic high school. Students really connected with her because she was younger, she was warm, bright, and passionate. I think she's about our age. 26 Mm -hmm. and so these girls had probably gone to all girls um high all girls school since you know they were started school in kindergarten and usually the nuns were a lot older Mm -hmm. one mentioned that she had a nun the exact same nun in first grade that her dad had when he was in first grade and so then to get this like super fun and energetic and young nun as your english teacher really meant a lot to the students right On Friday, November 7th, 1969, Kathy left work around 3 p.m. and returned to the apartment that she shared with another nun, Sister Russell. She told multiple people that day that she was going to buy an engagement gift for her sister that night, and she seemed really excited about it. Sister Kathy left her apartment around 7 p.m., cashed her paycheck at the bank, went to the bakery, bakery for dinner rolls and then went to the shopping center to buy an engagement gifts accounts vary as to whether sister Kathy ever made it back to her apartment after shopping another former student Mary Craig recalls being in the area where sister Kathy and Russell lived that night to peek into the apartment of Mr. Noon a teacher she and her friend had a crush on and they heard yelling from the direction of sister Kathy's apartment She said, it was a man's voice, loud, booming, garbled with emotion, anger. We really thought it was some kind of violence that was going on up there. So it wasn't until 1130 that night that Sister Russell calls Gary Coob and Brother Pete. So 1130. That's late. Yeah, what time was she supposed to be home by? So 
she left at seven and she was all she was going to do was those three errands. So and um, Russell doesn't even call the police. She calls their two friends, Jerry Coob and Brother Pete. So we find out that Jerry Coob and Kathy Sesnick were self-proclaimed soulmates. Jerry says that. Kathy doesn't. We, we obviously no, don't know Kathy's side, but Jerry claims that they were. I am suspicious. I'm not suspicious of him, even though some people are. I'm suspicious of Sister Russell, though. Me too. So then Jerry Coob and Brother Pete come over, and 45 minutes later, then they call the police. Hmm. I know. That's kind of weird. As the men were leaving the apartment, they noticed Kathy's car parked out on the street adjacent to their apartment. The car was muddy. There were twigs on the steering wheel. And it was apparent to Jerry that it had been in a swampy area. And it was also apparent that the person who left it there wanted the car to be found because they parked it at that super weird angle, like sticking out. Do, do you remember seeing they that? They either wanted, I don't know if I believe they wanted it to be found. I, they could have freaked out. Yeah, and just like this was the quickest way to park. Yeah, and bailed. So then this, it's also this other really strange mystery Three days later, another woman goes missing and is later found dead. Um, Joyce Malecki, age 20, and she also disappeared going shopping. Do you remember that? Yeah. It was weird how it was so close to each other. Yeah, it is. And Gemma and Abby are also also working with Joyce's brothers to try to see the connections between the cases. And so far... There doesn't appear to be too many connections. Some people speculate that um, Joyce was murdered to throw off the investigation so that they were directly connected, but Joyce um, and Kathy didn't know each other at all, and so it was kind of just to like throw this huge loophole in the whole thing. That might be too high up for me. It, for me, like yeah, it's rare, but it might be just a coincidence. Yeah, that's true. So, in mid-January 1970, Sister Kathy's body was found by hunters. She was laying on her back near a dump with her skull caved in. Conversations with journalists and longtime Baltimore residents, um, people believe Kathy's murderer knew her very, very well, and that the police and FBI likely knew more than they let on about Kathy and Joyce Malecki. Baltimore's widespread corruption and strict hierarchies are preventing information from getting out. In the final episode... Is there still as much corruption in Baltimore? I don't know. I think there is, isn't there? I kind of feel like there is. Anytime that those big news cases come out, it's always in Baltimore. Like um, Adnan. Right. And then there's... I don't know. Baltimore just has a lot of tension there, too. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could be because of... I'm sure, I'm sure there's great police officers there and there are great police officers, but it, I believe that in positions of power, there are capabilities of it being mm-hmm. in the episode's final moments. We learned that there was one witness, Jane Doe, a student from Keogh who claimed to see the body. So then it's like, dun, dun, dun. But then luckily with Netflix, we can watch episode two right away. <laughs> Which I did. <laughs> See, like, all I watched was the first episode. And so when Meg first told me about it, I was just like, all they talked about was a murder. That's it. And I was mm-hmm. like, wait, what does this have to do with anything? And then and when you watch the second one, it becomes really apparent why it's more like a topic of mm-hmm. discussion. So episode two is titled The School. We learn right away that Jane Doe is Jean Weiner. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how to say her last name? I don't remember how to say yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not sure. We'll call her Jean. She was raised in an extremely devout Catholic family. Her dad was a police officer. Her mother was a good Catholic wife. Huge family, full of kids. I think I want to say there was 11. There was a lot of kids. There was. In this episode, we learned that Kia was supposed to be this super great all-girls Catholic school. You had to pass an admissions test to get accepted, and all the girls were super excited and honored to be able to go to Keogh. Then we hear from Jean, and we quickly learn that that was not the case at all. Jean went to confession where she confided 
to her priest, Father Magnus, that her uncle had sexually abused her when she was younger. Magnus asks asks her for her name, which is a big no-no in confessions. I've never been to a confession. I'm Christian, but I'm not Catholic. And so we don't have to do confessions, but you're supposed to remain anonymous. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're not supposed to ask for the name. And Magnus told her, I don't really know if God can forgive this. Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is insane. A couple of weeks later, Magnus and Father Maskell called her into one of their offices and began to sexually abuse her. They called their semen Holy Spirit and the Eucharist. That's horrific. It is horrific on every sense of the word. Well, like for Catholics, and I'm not trying to be insulting or insensitive, but for Catholics, it's like sex is not talked about and it's just wait till marriage sort of a thing. And so like these girls, and I kind of disagree with that from a fundamental standpoint. Um, I just think that we should all be educated on sex um, and the option should be out there for birth control. Um, and you know, just education of how not to get STDs instead. And the fact is that these young girls have not been given the proper knowledge on probably what semen are on what mm-hmm. penises do. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, uh, so they don't know if what's happening to them is wrong. Yeah, exactly. A quote from Jean. He was reminding me that the things I had done weren't done to me. I had made those things happen. Which isn't true. Yes. Not true at all. The abuse happened over numerous therapy sessions. So he would call this therapy. Sometimes he would bring in other people to abuse Jean. And one time he brought a gun, removed the bullets, put it to her temple, and said that if her father found out that she had been a whore, he would do the same thing, but he would leave the bullets in. So he made her terrified to tell anybody. Jean wasn't the only student being abused at the hands of Maskell. He would also prey on students who had a history of abuse, and he would call their names over the speakers to come into his office. Once your name was called, the students said that there would be a hush that would fall over the classroom and the teachers would just look down and not make eye contact as if they knew something was going on. One student told a story. It was after school and she was in Sister Kathy's classroom talking about guitar lessons. Maskell had come over the intercom and asked Kathy to send that student into his office. The student and Kathy made eye contact and she knew that Kathy knew what was going on. Kathy replied and said, I'm sorry, she was just leaving to go home and got her out of having to go into Maskell's office. One student confided to Kathy, and Kathy asked Jean about the abuse as well. Kathy told them that she would take care of it. The day that Kathy was killed, Kathy told Jerry Koob, that was her soulmate, quote unquote soulmate, that there was something serious she needed. He was also a teacher there, right? He was um, a he was studying to be a father. Okay. Yep. I thought he was a teacher there too. Maybe. Okay. That um, she had told him that there was something serious that she needed to talk to him about, and he thought that she was gonna bring up marriage because Jerry said, "I'll leave the fatherhood, and you if you leave the sisterhood, you're my soulmate, and I want to get married." And she said no. And she said, you're, you were meant to be a father. I was meant to be a sister and we're not going to get married. And so Jerry thought that it was to bring back up that topic and maybe that she had changed her mind. But now he thinks it was to tell him about all of the information that she was gathering about Maskell. Two days before Kathy went missing, one of the abuse students and her boyfriends went to Kathy and Russell's apartment to visit. But Maskell and Magnus burst into the apartment without knocking. Maskell looked furious and Magnus looked dumb. That's what they said. <laughs> Magnus looked dumb. I was like, okay, I'll say it. The next day, Maskell allegedly told the girl and her boyfriend that he would kill them and their families if they talked. Hmm. Just more and more abuse. The episode goes back to Jean. 
Jean says Maskell called her into his office and told her Kathy was missing, but he knew where she was and he could take her there. He drove her to the woods where she saw Kathy's body. There were maggots on her face and Jean kept wiping Kathy's face and crying, please help me, please help me. At that point, Maskell bent down next to her and said, do you see what happens when you say bad things about people? Hmm. Other notes about Maskell. He was a school counselor. He had a master's degree in school psychology. He was the chaplain for the Maryland State Police. His brother, Mask- his brother Tom Maskell, was a Baltimore City policeman, and Maskell was close with friends. Was close friends with several cops. You might go over this in the summary, but it doesn't he like make cop? Like at one point at a, like a makeout spot, he makes like cops rape a girl. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make cops. He rape doesn't a girl. make no. The cop chose to rape. Yes. The cops chose to rape a girl. And the cop said, "Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to." And he was like, "No, you should." And then he was like, "Okay." <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's literally insane. So episode four, the burial. Nope, sorry. Episode three, <laughs> the revelation. So Entertainment Weekly says something like episode two was this huge cliffhanger and episode three is kind of like just let let the dust settle. So we just kind of learn a, a few more facts. We learn about a super secret Baltimore detective. His name is Deep Throat and he um, won't show his face on camera and he they use the voice disguiser and they call him Deep Throat. And I'm assuming it's because he is currently a Baltimore detective and so he does not want to... No, I don't necessarily think it could be that. I think it's because this stuff like still has active people in it, and they're all just so convinced of the power and to be afraid Yeah, that he doesn't want to show it. I don't think it's necessarily that he's still an officer. I think there's he just believes that people are still out there that could hurt him. Okay, yeah. He says there are secret files buried in a cemetery grave by Father Maskell which we will learn about in later episodes. We also learn of Jane Rowe. This turns out to be Teresa Lancaster, whose testimony is equal to Jean's. She says, I can tell you stuff you won't believe that Father Maskell did. Oh, this is where um, she was the one who was raped by police officers in the woods. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We also learn about Sister Maylita. She was appointed to principal of Keogh in 1975, so pretty a couple of years after all of this went down. And upon hearing complaints from parents and students in the school, Maylita took action. Gemma said she told him he had five, 15 minutes to pack and get his things out of there. <laughs> so okay. she was kind of just um, a nod to her for saying, get out of my school. Apparently, this school shut down, is shutting down this year. Yeah, they changed the name. They still kept Keo, but they changed the first name from Archbishop. And then now it's being completely shut down? Yeah. Wow. I even tried to find a website, and it's non-existent for the school. Dang. Sorry, I just hit the mic. Oh, that's okay. Episode four, The Burial. We learn from Lee Richmond. She's a professor from John, Johns Hopkins, and she was a friend of Maskell. She was planning a visit with Maskell in 1990 when he explained he was busy burying a bunch of old office files in the cemetery. And I was just like, whenever you first hear about it, you're like, what? How, why would you even, first of all, why would you do that? Second of all, why would you even admit to doing that? Just say I'm busy. You can't come visit. <laughs> hey, I'm busy. Um, I'm in a cemetery putting <laughs> stuff there. No questions, please. Deep Throat from episode three claims these were nude photos of girls. He's quoted as saying, that's a typical pedophile. A pedophile cannot separate from his collection. Yeah. Even if he can't get to it, he at least knows it's still there. There was enough to arrest Maskell on the spot, but the division chief ran interference with the church. We also hear from Sarah A.H. May, who worked for the state attorney's office from 1983 to 2004. Do you remember Sarah H. May? Mm -hmm. She was like that woman who she seems strong as F and she, if she is lying, she is such a good liar. So she describes going to the cemetery and examining the files the day they were dug up. Sharon says to my recollection, there was nothing found. 
At first, Sharon May appears to be avoiding Ryan White's questions with a lot of, I do not recall answers just over and over. I do not recall. I do not recall. Ryan White then asks her, were you involved in a conspiracy to protect Maskell from the law? No way. She says, I was not one to be intimidated. Adding to that, that she is not now and has never been a Catholic. That doesn't matter. The power of the church goes beyond that religion almost. Yeah. The faith based of it, obviously. Yeah. So Joe McGovern from Entertainment Weekly says about Sharon, but in four episodes of The Keepers, there's not been a person's face that I've studied more closely as May's. Either she's telling the truth or she's not telling the truth. And if it's the latter, what stories she must have. And I think that is so true. Oh, she was a strong lady, though. So she's like the state attorney person, which we explained. And obviously, he was the chaplain for many things. And obviously, he had Maskell. And Maskell was like in charge of a lot and was in with the police department. Which makes me think that it goes higher than the police department. And I don't think it's a stretch to believe that May could be lying. Because mm-hmm. she's a part of the government. Yep. Not that I'm like, I'm not even a huge conspiracy person. But that's Oh, just, me neither. This just all is too much. The facts all line up. Yeah. Episode five, The, the Suspects. So I'm just going to say it. To me, Maskell did it. Magnus did it. But I don't think he was the one to actually do the blow to the head. But if it wasn't for Maskell, I believe Sister Kathy would be alive. Yeah. So Or lived a long life. <laughs> or lived a really long life. So Maskell is now deceased and he's he suffered from dementia for the final years of his life. So no, no justice can be served there. But justice can be found in finding Maskell's accomplice. And I believe that was the person that actually did the deed. So... This one was one where I was like, they, Abby and Gemma received two tips from two different people with very similar sounding stories. And you heard one story and you'd be like, oh, for sure. That was the guy that did it. And then you heard the next story and was like, oh no, it was for sure that guy. Do you remember that part? The uncles, their uncles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first tip is from Debbie Yon. She sent in a tip saying, I think my uncle Edgar Davidson killed sister Kathy. Debbie's Aunt Margaret, which would be Edgar's wife, tells the story about Edgar coming home with a bloody shirt and a not-so-good alibi on the night of November 7, 1969, the same night Sister Kathy disappeared. A couple of days later, when Kathy's disappearance was on the nightly news, Aunt Margaret recalls Edgar watching and smirking and saying she'll probably be buried in the snow by the time they find her. Shortly after, Edgar got new tires for his car. He says he got them for the winter snow, and Margaret thinks it was also to cover up and to change his car's tires tracks. But if they stole Kathy's car, why would that matter? I don't know. Maybe he, maybe they needed multiple cars. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe he had multiple people. So remember Kathy was going to buy an engagement present for her sister the night she disappeared? Mm-hmm. Well, the gift was never found. Kind but of. Kind of, yeah. Funnily enough, that Christmas, Edgar got Margaret a necklace with a green rhinestone. Margaret could tell that the gift wasn't originally meant for her. The necklace looked like it represented wedding bells, and the green rhinestone meant nothing to her. It wasn't her birthstone. It wasn't Edgar's birthstone. Well, it turns out that it was Sister Kathy's sister's fiancé, which is now her husband's birthday, was in August. And my birthday is in August, and our birthstone is green. Mm-hmm. And wedding bells with a green birthstone. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of like, as soon as I heard that story, I was like, oh, Edgar for sure did it. But then you hear the second story, and then it just makes me think, were both of these people involved? I don't know. The second tip came from Sharon Smith, and she had a super similar story. She remembers hearing an argument between her parents where her dad said, do you want to know why I drink? It's because we killed a woman and put her behind the shop. And Kathy's body was discovered near the Schmidt family business. So this is the second story. Yep. This is the second, second. That make you think, oh, maybe they did it. Maybe Mm -hmm. they all did it is what I think. 
Kind of me too. So maybe Sharon's dad was involved with killing Kathy, or he may have just helped his brother Billy dispose of the body after Kathy was already dead. Billy came home with a bloody shirt that night, and afterwards he became a heavy drinker. Sharon's brother was also haunted by Kathy's death. Sharon's brother has a really distinct memory of an uncle keeping him company keeping him occupied as a small child while his uncle Billy and his mysterious friend Skippy disposed of a rolled up rug in the woods. See, what if Skippy is the other dude? Oh yeah. Edgar. Skippy could be Edgar. Like maybe he was also hiding the fact cause he wasn't a very good husband either. Maybe yeah. He was hiding the fact that he was gay. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good point. Cause Billy it's assumed that Billy is gay. It was assumed that Billy was gay. Yeah. Yeah. So Sharon's brother said that this is a child's memory in an old man's body. So he thought nothing of it at the time. He was so small. He really didn't think anything of it. And then only to realize much later that it was probably sister Kathy's body mm-hmm. in the rolled up rug. So yeah, I bet Skippy was Edgar. That's just pure speculation, but that does make sense. Yeah, a lot of, well, most of this whole thing is speculation. Yeah, and then Billy, um, that Uncle Billy, it turns out that he had like super creepy things. Like that episode creeped me out. He would talk about um, the woman in the attic and being scared and hearing the woman in the attic talking to him. Right. And he later committed suicide. But he just, and then. The woman in the attic, though, was. He kept on hearing voices. It was like, no, but it was like a nun's habit habit on a mannequin. A mannequin. It was so creepy. Oh, gives me chills. So those are the two, what I think sound like really good So tips. maybe it, Skippy is Edgar. Episode six, The Web. It starts off with an interview with Edgar, who is now super old. So that's the very first tip that came in. He denies the crime. He says he did say all those things to his ex-wife, but he only said it to scare her. He also confirms that he called into a popular radio show and said that he knew someone with Kathy's rosary. So do you know what a rosary is? Mm -hmm. So um, he said that he was just trying to trick his wife and he was just young and stupid, but he he was not involved at all and he has no memory uh, or he has no idea who actually did it. That one guy, but that one, if you do watch it, one, he seems senile to me Mm -hmm. and like he has dementia. Two, he all... Or something just wrong. And two, he just seems like he does actually know something. I agree completely. Then we also go back to Jerry Coob. Um, He was Kathy's self-proclaimed soulmate. And Tom Nugent, the the original journalist of the story, says if Coob didn't kill her, he knows who did. Jerry's alibi is a little bit shaky for the night. He said that he went with his friend, brother Pete, to get dinner, and they saw a movie. They were headed back home when they got the call from Sister Russell. Tom Nugent recommends taking everything that Coob says with a gigantic boulder of salt. (laughs) And Jerry does tell a really colorful story that does seem really fake. He says into the camera that while he was being interrogated by the police, one detective threw Kathy's vagina on the table in front of him, wrapped in a newspaper. And do you remember that story? Yeah. It did seem like that can't possibly be true. For some reason, I don't think Jerry Coop was involved. No? Um, like maybe not even just trying to cover up Maskell? No. Lastly, we see uh, director Ryan White present Sharon May. That was that super strong lady from the earlier episode that was lying with a list of 50 abusive priests published by the Baltimore Archdiocese in 2002. Only one name on the list was found guilty of sex crimes, and he himself pleaded guilty. May has nothing to say of this, just says the evidence wasn't there. 50 priests and only one guilty. Do churches have to pay taxes? No. Just thinking. Okay. Christian Holub, who wrote this episode from Entertainment Weekly, says one of the biggest takeaways from this show 
Just as it takes a village to raise a child, it also takes a village to abuse a child and protect the abuser. And I think that that is just really well put. Mm -hmm. I mean, they needed a lot of people behind them covering this up. Which is so effed up. Yeah. Episode 7, The Conclusion. We learn of another victim of Maskell's abuse, Charlie Franz. Charlie claims physical and sexual abuse and says Maskell introduced drugs and alcohol to him. Maskell was abusing Charles in 1967, two years before Kathy's desk, death, before Maskell was transferred to Keogh at all. Charles puts it bluntly. If the Catholic Church had dealt with this properly in 1967, there would be no murder. We wouldn't be here. Jean wouldn't have had to be abused. All of those girls that were at that high school that were because abused. Because he, he turned it in, right? His mom turned it in. Yeah. So basically this episode is just how the church, police, government, everybody had to cover up so much stuff in order for it to keep on going and the abuse to keep on occurring. And the church highly claims now that, okay, so Jane Doe, the two Janes Mm -hmm. made those formal accusations and sued, was it sue a lawsuit? Yeah. Sued the church in the nineties. And even though he was moved from this boys area and after the mom calls out Maskell, the church claims they never heard of any, thing wrong until 1992 yep so the church straight up lies to Jean and says she was the first person to come forward with allegations against Maskell but here Charles is saying no my mom did two years before that it's crazy so that is the keepers okay I have some stuff go for it are you ready I'm ready okay so I think I love now I just want to kind of relate it back to the podcast and the concept of the podcast. I love that one women are banding together throughout all this. Not only are they banding together, these two best friends that are researching all of this, which we didn't mention much in the summary, but throughout the, sh- the series, you see two women mm-hmm. who are always researching things together and trying to solve the case. But while solving the case, they actually open a, a Facebook group, which kind of becomes like this group that, um, uh, it allows for a platform for all the victims, sexually abused victims to go there and just vent. So I love that it's like the women banding together. The Janes, both the Jane Doe and Roe, is it Doe and Roe, mm-hmm. were able to band together even though they never met and provide two separate voices. I think it's powerful that they never met, you know, yep. and they both make the same accusations. And these two women are working together to solve um, a murder and give the dead a voice, which is powerful. And they end up giving other women a voice while doing that. I definitely believe Maskell had something to do with the murder. I think he did hire people. Like we said, I think all of those uncles have probable involvement. Maybe Edgar is Skippy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like the uncles that were accused were the guys that did it. And Maskell just like hired these dudes because they all were kind of in the financial situations where they needed help. Yeah. Um, I think it shows all of this shows the lack of care of these women's lives. It just needs to not at all be acceptable. It just shows that money and power can overthrow justice, but not if we arm women with the correct things, then if we don't, it could go unnoticed. Uh, it shows that how manipulative he was as a man. And the whole thing is about weird control and power. This rape is about weird control and power, just adding to the power that he already had. It just shows that how much power can go to your head, I guess, and be effed up. Um, and it's showing that banding together is more powerful than being quiet because things have changed but uh, having a voice gives you power and helps you make change, which is why it's so important. Um, and also legislation. Oh, you hear siren. <laughs> it also just shows that legislation is important. Um, so how we can make changes, in my opinion, is that um, we, it, we should encourage women to speak up and to tell an adult. So young women, we should educate them about sex 
maybe in early elementary school, late elementary school, not to like encourage it, but to just say, this is what it is and encourage them to say something, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, making men understand themselves when to speak out and that kind of pressure that like the police officers received to rape the girls and the other men that were there to rape the girls, that kind of pressure is wrong. And like we should illustrate to men how bad rape is like as young boys too mm-hmm. um giving women safe resources like educating both parties on consent i also just i know you've touched on this but i want to reemphasize how strong jane roe and doe were and how they can really help people who have been abused and who and see that hey it's okay for you to come out um i know that people say that it's embarrassing they're embarrassed they don't want to talk about it they feel like it's their fault they feel like they did something wrong um and that's not the case at all and so um it i think it shows a lot of power it shows a lot of strength for Jean and Teresa and all of the other women that came out to stand up and say something right i agree Okay, I, last night, this kind of just opened up this whole, like, what's going on in all of the religions, and is this a widespread issue? We actually only hear about this happening in Catholicism. That's really what the media is paying attention to. Would you agree? I wouldn't say only, but I would say, yes, it's the strongest. Mm -hmm. And so then I was saying, I know so many beautiful, strong Catholic families. And in no way is this a 100% all Catholic families across the world have had this happen, but it is a widespread issue. And I found a article by Roy Speckenhart called the religious sex abuse epidemic. And he says that the trend of the less than holy behavior is not just limited to the Catholic church, although they do receive the majority of the media's attention. It appears as though many institutions that have a tradition of powerful clerks that guide the community also suffer suffer from allegations of sexual abuse. So it's worsened when the religious institutions attempt to handle the matter internally in religious courts instead of reporting the abuse to secular authorities. So that also seems to be a key thing is that they want to handle it internally rather than going to the outside courts. Even though it's happening within the church, it's happening on, if it's in America, it's happening on American soil. Therefore the law should be prevalent Mm -hmm. or should be what they go by. So some other um, clergies that have had abu- had allegations of abuse, including Islam, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Baptist churches in this article um, have had allegations of sexual abuse occur. Um, he also says that whenever you read the Bible and whenever it emphasizes that sex is bad and it's not good and we shouldn't do it, he quotes Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so just reading that text and um, growing up with that in your mind emphasizes that sex until marriage is not healthy and it's not something that should be discussed and it's and repress repressing sexuality discourages victims from being able to come forward and so whenever these women or men were raped by the priests they they're not going to talk about it and they're they don't know any any different and they're not going to come and report what's happening which is also super sad yeah i agree so things that religions have in common um that are have these allegations against them there's a strong clergy they utilize religious courts instead of secular civil courts the survivors feel that they can't come forward or that they will be cast out of their community the religions don't talk about sexuality 
and leaders of the religious community are given extraordinary power over their followers. I just have a difference of belief, so I feel like I can't talk on it. I just don't, like, think that sex is bad. So I think what is bad about sex is not talking with your partner before doing it, the partner that you're going to be with, um, not asking them, one, have you been checked, and then not taking the proper precaution to prevent STDs can be negative. And then also, if you're not ready to get pregnant not having the birth control lined up is a negative thing. But I think that all of those educational things should be talked regardless of people's beliefs, just to give them some source of armor to be in the real world. And I don't know. I just, I disagree that sex is a negative thing. I think you should be old enough, consensual, know your partner and just be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So then I think I've mentioned this in the past, but I, was raised Christian. I still consider myself a Christian, but an extremely liberal Christian. And, um, as you guys all know, yoga is my, (laughs) my heart. And so some people, um, although yoga is not a religion, it is spiritual. Mm -hmm. And so then the fine line between spirituality and religion, I feel like that, that is a super gray line. And as I went to, um, yoga teacher training, one of the sessions, we had a long session about ethics and yoga. And my teacher, thankfully, at the time I was, I did not want to hear it, but in the long run, I'm super thankful. She told us about um, men and women coming into power in yoga and then having allegations of sexual, physical abuse against their, um, the people that they were teaching. And so at the time I was like, don't tell me this. Like I just got over, um, my own religion, all this terrible, terrible stuff happening. And then now you're telling me, Oh, it also happens in yoga. I was like, great. It's just everywhere. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't want to hear this. And I was like down for a couple of days after hearing about it. But then now I'm seeing, no, thank God you told us about that. Right. Thank God that we learned about that and that um, it's getting put out there and that it's not hopefully not being hid from, you know, the media and the media's attention. And so then I found a couple of examples of this happening in the yoga community because I just want to emphasize that I am a Christian and I and I do love yoga. And so I want to emphasize that, hey, these worlds that I love also have dark sides as well. And so the more we talk about it, maybe the more we can make a difference in the future. Good. So I found yoga's culture of sexual abuse that can't be ignored by Wendy Seifert. So there are widespread claims of sexual abuse at a yoga ashram in Australia during the 1970s and 80s. One woman testified that the director of the ashram cultivated an environment of sexual abuse and manipulation. The director preached sex as a form of spiritual enlightenment and created an environment where survivors of assault felt that they would be shamed for speaking out. So how much in line is that with the Catholic Church? With the negative people in the Catholic Church. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, I also want to say that not all people are like this using like sex as a negative thing, you know? No. But Hopefully yeah. that's the, maj- the, mi- the minority. It is. I fully believe it is. I fully believe it is. So, um, although this case is shocking, it isn't rare. We wouldn't, the name of the ashram in Australia is Satyanda Ananda. So nobody in America would recognize that name, but people in America will recognize the name Bikram Chowdhury. Do you recognize that name? No. Bikram Yoga? Yeah, I do recognize. Yeah, I didn't know that's what it came from. I thought it was just like another name. Yeah, so Bikram Yoga comes from the man Bikram Chowdhury. Okay. And he has numerous sexual harassment lawsuits against him. That's not good. An arrest warrant was issued in California and he has been ordered to pay $6.8 million to his formal legal advisor, Mickey Jaffa Bowden. 
the link between sex and Bikram Yoga's founder, nothing new. He's led a, a glamorous lifestyle and taught some of the most beautiful and famous people since the 1970s, including Michael Jackson and Barbara Streisand. So it's also, he was in this super high um, fame, really. Um, and he felt like he had all the power, it sounds like. According to Benjamin Lore, who wrote a book on Bikram Chaudhry, it is said that much of his success is due to his charisma, and he even compared his unscripted responsiveness to Donald Trump. That's scary. <laughs> Just thought I would throw that one out there. What? <laughs> Allegedly, Bikram's teacher training program include yogis stripping down to Speedos, Chaudhry barking lewd comments at the crowd, erections and hookups all around women brushing the hairs the guru's hair and women providing him massages five women were featured in a vanity fair article in 2014 they told their stories which included sexual harassment repeated unwanted advances and rape allegedly child reclaimed complained about his wife and insisted that he needed the love from his students so it's really unfortunate no, he took advantage of them. I also would just like to say that, like, masculine and men like this just, like, don't represent what they're about. And I am curious as to whether they even believe what... I, like, am led to believe that they don't even believe what they're preaching. Mm-hmm. Because if they do believe what they're preaching, how can they even do it? Right. So... What do you think? I don't, I don't know. That is such a difficult question. I think for in Bikram Chaudhry's case, um, he is quoted as saying that he's so faithful to his wife and he, he's leading the yoga lifestyle and he is the true yogi and blah, blah, blah. And so, but then how can you go behind closed doors and do something different? So, okay. So I have a few more things I wanted to talk about. So this is, uh, from moviepilot.com. So I don't know for sure if this is all true. Um, this is a writer at creators.co. This says, uh, the seven most interesting updates in the murder and abuse cases of the keeper since the series aired. Now I don't know this source. I I've never heard of it, so I don't know how accurate it is. Um, so the Maryland statute of limitations has been extended. So statute of limitations means that like after you, it's like how long you can be accountable for committing a crime um, and how long till you can be charged. So it would extend the statute of limitations past the age of 25. I guess it was much sooner than that, which sucks. Yeah. Because they actually had their memories repressed, which isn't, which were like their memories, they couldn't even, they didn't even know it was there until things happened to them. And I'm afraid because there's times in my life when I went through stressful things that I don't remember, I suppress my memories and I don't even know what happened during those times. Wow. So like, I believe that it's true. Mm -hmm. So it's not fair that there's like a statute of limitations on rape. No. Um, the ex, Apparently, Maskell's body is being exhumed. Yes, it was. Um, for DNA. Um, even though I don't think he murdered her, literally. He, like, hired someone to murder. So, yeah, his body was... Um, it's what I think. ...was dug out of the ground, and they tested DNA versus DNA found at the crime scene, and it was not a match. It Already, mm -hmm. it hasn't been a match. Hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, that's... I don't think that he was the person who did it either. So I wasn't shocked. Yeah. There's a Facebook group that they can kind of rely on. The Archdiocese of Baltimore still refused to admit that they knew about Maskell before 1992. Uh, local police and FBI are now working together, which I don't know if I trust <laughs> anymore. Um, and then... Maskell may have a history of sex abuse himself. Did you know that? Was it? His mom was crazy. It was, it, this is pure speculation, but according to someone on Facebook, Maskell went to an all boys high school. And at the same time, the then chaplain, Joseph A. Davies was charged with sex abuse crimes in the 1980s. Mm. 
Yeah. So um, I didn't talk about this earlier, but Maskell's mom um, made him act as if he was a priest starting at like a super young age, like five or six. And she would make him go in the front yard and like recite all of these Catholic prayers while other boys were like playing baseball and stuff. And she would do you, do you know those little vanilla cookies that are like a perfect circle? Yeah. Wafers. Yeah. Yeah. She would make him pretend that the wafers were communion and he would pass communion to people like at a tiny age. So I just think I'm not trying to defend Maskell at all, but there's reasons why they lead to this severe severity of evilness. Mm -hmm. Um, more survivors have come forward. So anyway, that's what's new. I believe that the women did suppress the memories and I believe that they are telling the truth. Me too. Moral of the story. So we have a quote from the Entertainment Weekly article, article I found. It says, So though her murder remains unsolved, the truth the search for truth has helped some survivors find some measure of comfort, peace, and most importantly, connection. As Keo shuts down for good, Jean and her friends erect a memorial plaque to Kathy Sesnick, to the woman who stuck up for them when she was alive and who brought them together again in death. Perfect. Perfect. What's one good thing that happened to you this week? One good thing that happened to me. Oh, um, I get to go to Vancouver next weekend and visit Desmond's family. So I'm super excited about that because it'll be a weekend of just pure fun and relaxation. And I haven't had one of those in a while. That's super great. What Um, about you? One good thing that happened to me this week. I just feel more at ease this week for some reason. So that's good. Maybe you're getting in the groove of, your new job and your new home. Yes. How long has it been? Like three months. Three months? Maybe more. That long? Yeah. I moved here in May and it's September. Perfect. Okay. Well, we love you. Thank you so much for listening. Our battery's blinking at us. So (laughs) make sure to subscribe and like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe on Apple and YouTube. Perfect. Other places. And all the places. Okay. We love you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye.